This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Humane Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. On September 20th, 2013, the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals hosted the third annual Living with Wildlife Conference in Vancouver, British Columbia. Defender Radio Special Report. In this special report, you will hear the entire presentation from Dr. Shelley Alexander, a professor at the University of Calgary and an internationally recognized canid expert. To find out more about Dr. Alexander or see videos, photos, and other speakers, visit FurBearDefenders.com. Thank you for having me here. I was at the Toronto conference last year and really enjoyed it. It's nice to see all these people working towards a common goal. Uh, so it says, and wolves in brackets there, because uh, sort of tacking that on, I feel a little bit like uh, an imposter, although I started with wolves many years ago. I haven't been up on the contemporary issues really with um, uh, wolf conflict, but uh, I'll draw from my older experience on that uh, and sort of comment on things as I can. Um, so most of my work has been on coyotes in the, in the most recent uh, history. But I think a lot of what we learn about coexisting with coyotes can be extended to wolves. Obviously, there's some behavioral differences when we're dealing with conflict with wolves uh, in terms of they're they just a different uh, size animal, different... Um, you know, always in pack structures. And uh, so there are some unique challenges to the species, but I think that understanding um, coyote conflict with humans is really a, a probably the most poignant place where we can enter into understanding uh, conflict with wildlife. Uh, this, with wolves, the wolf conflict is um, extremely hot for you right now in uh, BC because of the... Um, you know, the proposed plan to sterilize and cull wolves in order to support uh, caribou populations. So it's a very contemporary issue right now. Uh, and there's science that really can be used to support both sides of that argument. Um, and I'll talk to the issues that I'm going to raise today, really, we can, we can swing to either direction, coyotes or wolves. I want to point out something, though, because I think this is the theme of what, what I think about should come across today is, is something that Aldo Leopold wrote in, in the mid-1950s when he was commissioned to do uh, the first wildlife management report in the United States. And at that point in time, he said, meaningful and significant wildlife management requires management of people. And I think we can't forget that we often tend to, to move towards just managing animals. And that's a theme that, um, you know, uh, it's not original to, uh, to me bringing that up, that we need to focus on that. It was in the first talk as well. So again, I think coyotes are our entry point to understanding what's going on with, um, with wildlife. I'm going to have to take this off because I'm going to move. Um, so uh, it, you, some of you will have seen the slides, but I think where we learned about coyotes originally influences how we see not just coyotes but other canids as well. And I'll touch on some of this a little bit more detail, but, you know, there's a strong, strong um, native mythology around coyotes in North America, and I've done uh, some comprehensive research on that. I haven't published that yet, but there's a lot of stories about coyotes. So this is not a, 
this is not an emergent animal on the landscape like some of the distribution maps show. This is an animal that was ubiquitous across North America, and it's in all of the mythology, and a very central animal. So I always find it interesting that it's gone from something that was quite significant and spiritual to something that we um, treat like a pest. Uh, these are sort of common symbology that you might have seen phoenix coyotes, and, and so that influences how you see it, uh, the coyote. Tell me if this is getting too loud or something. Um, I think from a biological standpoint, if you want to understand who canids are or who coyotes are, you have to um, go back a long time. And canids, for those, some of you may not realize, canids are native to North America. This is where they evolved. So what this shows you is one of the early um, canid prototypes that was on the North American continent, Isayan divisi. This is the animal that went across the Bering Strait and became the gray wolf. And, and radiated into a number of different species. Um, but it stayed, also stayed uh, on the North American continent and evolved and became extremely adaptable. And it went through a process. What you see on that side there is um, what's called anagenetic evolution on the North American continent as opposed to phylogenetic where it splits off into new animals. It, it refined and became not only specialized, able to specialize, but also able to respond to lots of climatic change. And it survived the return of the, or the coming of the dire wolf and the gray wolf. So extreme, it became extremely adaptable. And, and a lot of people aren't aware that coyote persisted, evolved here, and actually gray wolves are not from this uh, continent. So this is just an example of, of what they might have looked like on the North American continent. And some of the other kinds of canid-type species that existed here that are um, extinct. There are about 214 different um, canid-type species in the world, and there's only a handful left that survived through all the glaciation, etc. And one of them is coyote. So evolution made coyote one of the most resilient canids on the planet. Um, and they have, the reason for that is they have high demographic compensation. And Dan was talking about this stuff earlier, so I don't want to dwell on it and uh, repeat too much. But it means they can breed quickly, um, and they can also be very adaptive. So what you see there is the well-used photo of a coyote traveling on the Portland Transit System. They can do just about anything. So coyote, I think, is one of these animals that really challenges what we think about and what we do with wildlife. So if you think about who is coyote, he's the creator. and he's, he, he, The coyote is actually a central character in the Blackfoot, um, which is a um, uh, Plains um, native uh, group that... Um, where create, the creator is Nappy, and he's a coyote that creates the North American um, ecosystem, creates the human being, so very central. Um, but he's also, you know, we see all these different roles, predator, survivor, parent, offspring, sibling. You know, I've, I've experienced coyote in many of these different ways, having raised coyotes as well. Um, but as well... So with all of these different rules, it is the most persecuted native carnivore in North America. I find these statistics pretty shocking. These were compiled by a group called Project Coyote out of the United States. Um, in the U.S., this isn't available for Canada in this yet, but we have over 500,000 coyotes killed each year, one per minute. And these are killed for, for management purposes to maintain 
um, to, to either protect uh, personal property or to maintain ungulate populations for um, um, for hunting. And in the history, really, of the Wildlife Service program down there, um, we've had over 5 million coyotes killed since 1931. And these are numbers compiled by, um, by, as I said, Project Coyote and Camilla Fox, who is the executive director of that. Um, but one coyote per minute, I think that's, that's pretty, pretty shocking um, in terms of what that's doing. From, from something that's taken millennia to evolve, what are we doing to this animal when we're killing them in this numbers? Um, have any of you seen this kind of thing out in, in uh, BC or this area? This is a really, this is a prairie thing. I think it's almost exclusively prairie. Um, this is, this is used well, widely across through through Canada, the United States, but probably east of the Rockies. Um, and what they do is they hang them because this is a message to other coyotes to stay away. Um, and it's it's a you know it's a very uh, frontier mentality that continues to persist in our prairie provinces. But so the question I ask is, when we're persecuting them at this level, what are we doing? How many of you have seen the white coyote of eastern Canada? So, so when you put extreme pressure on a population over time, we know there's publications out that they're saying actually humans are probably the largest pressure on carnivore evolution now um, in terms of we're changing the characteristics and the morphology of animals because of the rate, carnivores, because of the rate at which we kill them. These are a new... Um, brand or something of coyotes that are evolving uh, in Nova Scotia. There's been a number of sightings, and this, of course, as soon as you see it, if it's cool, you should shoot it and stuff it. But um, this is the what's called a snow coyote. And there's some evidence that they may, this may be uh, hybridization. They're finding uh, golden retriever genes in these things. Um, but... Uh, this is pressure. So the, the koi dog thing you see, not the koi dog, but the koi wolf, there was a question about coyote wolf um, hybridization. Those are things that happen under extreme pressure. Those are not normal things. This is the kind of thing that happens under extreme pressure. So what are we creating on the North American continent? Contemporary issues, Dan went into this. Um, so these are some of the sort of smatterings of things that I've found and and that I think we need to think about that the research has shown us. So contemporary issues, urban adaptation, I won't dwell on this, but you know, here's a coyote that's made a den site out of a deck in um, Calgary. And this is, you know, says to himself, this deck is pretty cool. I like all the I like all the golf balls that I can find around here, and there's a lot of little dogs to play with. And then the people come out, they become habituated to people. They lose their fear. They say these these things with two legs aren't very afraid of me. Um, then maybe they're reinforced to be there by the food that they're provided, so the condition, and then eventually you end up with a conflict. So I won't dwell on that too long, because Dan did talk about that. So you have them saying to themselves, I own this place, right? I can do whatever I want. And they really are good at uh, adapting to this. People, there's the fences, they're climbing the fences. Um, so they're able to move through and adapt to that environment. Here you see them, so sort of more and more habituation to human pro, um, human places and people. This is from some of the diet work we did and published, um, which I think is reaffirming. It, it also reiterates some of what Dan said: is that you know 
coyotes are eating a largely natural diet. And I think the same would be for most wild canids. They're eating a natural diet. It's when they eat something that's not natural, like a pet, um, that we, we start to just focus on that one thing. But I think what was affirming about this diet study in Calgary was that contrary to what people were saying or reported to say in the media, um, we were able to provide some information back to people saying, well, relatively speaking, 1% of scats had domestic animals in it versus 84% of scats had um, small mammals. So there's not a lot of, of depredation going on in small uh, pets, though it's happening. Um, but the more problematic thing is that the availability of anthropogenic food, like uh, garbage, because we know that the time they spend eating the garbage, they're habituating, and then they're likely to protect that garbage. There's also some interesting stuff came out of that food con food uh, conditioning study there, a food uh, diet study, um, which was the presence of crab apples there. You can see a very high percentage. In the back, you won't be able to see those numbers, but that's about 33% of the scat had crab apples. So we were wondering what they were doing. But the important message here is that one in six scats contained discernible garbage, which means it had to be something persists through the diet, dietary system, so it's like plastic and wrappers. If people are feeding hot dogs or whatever, you're not catching that. Um, and here's some more. This wasn't supported with the statistics because the numbers weren't strong enough, but you can see the trends. This is a mapping of um, the conflict that was reported to the Calgary hotline. And you can see this particular neighborhood here, um, Stanley Park area, is, is uh, the high conflict zone. And then when we looked at where was the diet of the domestic animals and garbage showing up, the domestic animals are in this. This is a half of this map here, but this is the same neighborhood there. So there's a trend there. We couldn't pull it out statistically, but you could certainly see the high conflict report zones were supported by where coyotes were eating. Um, and I think the message from this one, this particular study, this biggest message is that people know where this stuff is happening. So, you know, getting more and more advanced about spatial temporal tracking and getting radio callers on and things like that might be not the best use of funds because people already know on the ground where this stuff is happening. Use the people. The people know. So, you know, here we thought crab apples, they were cleaning them up off the ground. And I have a video, but I'm not going to show you it today. Uh, but here's what actually was happening. As a, as a result of a website we built, somebody started sending in photos. And I don't know if you can see that coyote in there, but he's up there picking the crab apples out of the crab apple tree. So we, uh, we had to change our thinking about how animals were accessing food. So where we'd made a recommendation based on the science to clean up crab apples, uh, suddenly we were faced with something a little different, which was, uh, you know, arboreal coyotes. And what are you going to do? Pick the apples off the trees. So really, um, I think one of the other messages here is this is really a human problem. This isn't. This is this is coyotes or wolves out there doing what they do on the landscape, um, and when we provide something that draws them into our close contact, 
whether it's uh, the crabapple trees or leaving our pets untended in the yard or um, our cattle roaming free and not, not employing appropriate husbandry practices, we create the problem. The animal simply does what it, it needs to do to survive. So coming back to what Aldo Leopold says, humans, are the, humans need to be managed in this equation as well. So if all we do is run out and kill the predators, which is the common um, reaction, we, we, don't under, we don't address the underlying issue. This is a little bit from a media content analysis that I did, and addressing the underlying problem is, involves uh, educating people. And so in the media content analysis I did was for across Canada and looking at reported incidents with coyotes. And I found that... Um, in the in the um, twelve year period, there were only twenty six actual contacts between coyotes and people. There were six cases it could be identified as an attempted attack. Um, but what this averaged out to was a, a less than three attacks per year. And if somebody gets attacked by a coyote, it, it hits the media. So it's 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 a reasonably good rely, uh, um, estimate of numbers of events um, with people. In terms of actual contact, uh, there's probably a lot more interactions that go on than are reported. Um, there was also one fatal case. But the other important part of this thing is less than three events per year, so we can help people understand this is a fairly low risk, um, this is something that's fairly low risk for you on a day to day basis. Um, and in all of those cases where that happened in Canada, there was food conditioning involved. If you read the media cases out, you know, not just the first media article, but kept reading subsequent events, you'd find lady down the street was serving hot dogs to coyotes or um, they'd been eating dog food or kids had been seen giving them lunch. So again, it's a human problem. Interactions with dogs, I found that... <clears throat> There was a disproportionate uh, frequency of reported events with dogs, and I think the you would you know this would be intuitive to you, but the the media supported it, which was was nice. The media articles that the small dogs, when they are attacked, tend not to survive, um, and large dogs and medium dogs comparatively fewer events. So you see, with the blue, it's nothing happened. Um, Bitten is the green and uh, gray is, is killed. Very few large dog killed. And if, if you actually look at the situations where that happened, those, the, the dogs that did get killed that were medium or large dogs had been left tied to trees or something like that tied to in the backyard um, or abandoned. Uh, most of the reported cases, dogs were not leashed. So not about 92% of the reported cases, people would say, I was out walking my dog, and I was in a known, you know, it turns out it's a known coyote area, but the dogs weren't leashed, and they'll describe their dog running into the woods, and then they get attacked. So this is important. This is a human issue. Uh, another thing that we could understand and help educate people around from this data is that for those dogs that were killed, the 26 dogs that were killed, 18 of them there was no human around. And when and the other eight that did survive, the person was directly 
was right there and either intervened, they threw something at the coyote for that, um, and relatively few direct encounters on leash. So again, it's a human problem. If you're letting your dog run leash loose in a um, in a known coyote area, that's your problem. That's not the coyote problem. Um, and I think switching, changing that perspective is is where we have to focus some time. Dominant emotional reaction, and I think this will this will support some of what Dan was saying, um, was fear. So okay, this is not necessarily what people were feeling. This is what got reported. So there's a big difference. The media wants to be um, uh, sensational about this. So, of course, fear is the thing we want to tell people about. So this is the dominant emotional emotional response that's reported. Uh, but this might be people's only source of information on how should I feel about coyotes. And the things they express are fear for children, fear for the self, fear for the pets, fear for disease. <coughs> Um, and a variety of different diseases. So this fear is then combined with um, they don't know where to go. So I, if you remember Dan's slide there, that research showed that the people didn't know who's in charge here. And, and so they start contacting a variety of different organizations, and I think sometimes the organizations don't even know or they don't really deal with it that day. And so 12% uh, of the articles had had Canadians saying they feel ignored by the governing agency, or they've attempted to contact something and they just got the, the hand, right? Like, don't, we don't do that, talk to so-and-so. And when you read what they say, they say things like, I just don't want this to happen to somebody else. They don't want to listen to me. All they did was they told me this was my fault. Um, they don't want to do anything about it. So we have to take safety into our own hands. So you see where this is going, right? And I found the same thing as Dan did, which is if you listen and talk to these people, they might be really angry because no one else talked to them. And suddenly they deflate. The, art, the, the hatred towards the animal deflates as they start to understand why that might have happened. And all you have to do is say, I'm really sorry for your loss. And that's the first thing that tips it because it's the, it's the being ignored. So there's a societal cost to not responding to this this fear and this you know feeling like I'm being ignored. This happened in your own city uh, where there's a woman's cat was killed. I think she was in North Van, she may have, or Grouse Mountain area or something. But Judith Webster, so her cat Neutron died a week after it was attacked by coyotes, and she sued the city. Um, and many of you will probably be familiar with that case. Um, but she said that they negligently adopted a coexistence policy that therefore did not protect the rights of the citizens. And, and that tied up, you know, that's government money that went into that, that tied up people in court for a year. Um, and they finally didn't award her that. But, you know, all of that negative press out there creates what's called social amplification of risk. And so this is where we can use the education. If people phone an agency and the agency says, we don't deal with that, um, they don't have a, you know, a compassionate response to them, then people, they go to the media, they listen to what their neighbor says, they, they don't have the facts. And so they ask the question, should I be afraid of coyotes? They have no facts, they have no help, they go to the media, 
They say all the people in the media are reporting that they're afraid, and so they say, yeah, I should be afraid. We should do something about these coyotes. And this is what happens. In all urban attacks on people in Canada, we did find food conditioning, but in all the incidents, regardless of what happened, the severity of what happened, the coyotes were removed. So they were either trapped, shot, um, or they were taken care of by the people. In Calgary, there were people using um, antifreeze. So we default to killing them, even though we know that that doesn't work. Here's an example of culls that happened in response to the killing of the, the, uh, the woman in Nova Scotia. In 2009, 71,000 coyotes killed by the Saskatchewan government bounty. You have your own bounties um, implemented. You have people in Vancouver arguing for, for bounties. Um, 20,000 killed in Nova Scotia, all in one year. So these are the things that happen partly because of culture, but partly because of lack of information. So, you know, you could think I've been, want, I've been talking away here f uh, for this time period just saying killing doesn't work. We need to address the human issue. There is science out there that shows that killing doesn't work. This will be really hard for anyone at the back to see. Um, but essentially, if you start with a stable pack structure of coyotes, you've got a dominant breeding pair. They'll produce a certain number that will be supported by the environment. But if what you do is you start killing the leading, the, the, the breeding animals, you have transients or you have younger animals start breeding. If you lose both the, the, the breeding animals, you have everybody trying to breed. And the science shows that what then happens is you have a loss of the, the transfer of knowledge of what's the appropriate behavior, um, and you do end up with more animals on the landscape. So this has a, a boomerang effect of actually producing more um, uneducated individuals. It's kind of like killing all the adults in the city and then leaving the teenagers to run it, right? You, you, you create a problem. So again, this is a human problem. The science tells us killing predators doesn't work. And if you do that, you, and you don't deal with the underlying problem, which is human attractants, um, or poor management of, of stock, you end up with a problem. So, coexistence through education, I agree. I think the research supports that. Uh, three people per year in Canada, bitten on average, that's pretty low risk. I like to use some context for people in education. So we've got over 500, almost 500,000 dog bites per year. More people are, 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 many more people are bitten by dogs, but many people are killed by their own domestic dog um, in North America. Millions of dog bites in the United States. The chance of dying by lightning is about 100 times greater. Um, and seven people per day die in car accidents in Canada. So these statistics kind of provide people with some context. It doesn't address this issue of, of the irrational fear around predators, but um, I think it, it starts to help people see some context. So for education, I'll show you a couple of programs. One is a very small example, which is our Living with Coyotes um, program in Calgary. And uh, here what we did was we wanted to engage citizens in the process of collecting scientific information as well as provide education. Uh, and you'll see we developed a mapping tool which helps people keep track of where they saw coyotes, where other people saw coyotes. Um, 
And then we have an educational component on that. We don't have an active educational program. Um, we just don't have the power to do that, person power to do that. Um, but so this is called Living with Coyotes. You can check it out online. It's www.rockies.ca forward slash coyotes. Um, and up in the corner, you, you, it says mapping tool, coyote ecology, news and events gallery. Um, and the mapping tool was, was the citizen science component of it. I will tell you it's been adopted by a few different cities. Uh, New York, there were a couple of places, uh, municipalities of New York that uh, brought this into their own structure, their own government structure. You can't do this as a non-profit. You can't run this kind of thing in perpetuity as a, as a non-profit unless you're, uh, you've got somebody dedicated to this uh, mapping tool because it's just somebody's got to be maintaining this mapping tool. And for that reason, because nobody wants to fund coyotes, uh, we, we are not able to continue to support this mapping tool. For me, the measure of success was it got adopted by other cities uh, in North America. But the mapping tool was developed it's some, a pro, something called open source GIS. So it uses the Google platform. You can zoom and pan and move around. Um, and then wherever you see a coyote, you can put a pin point down. And so what I wanted was to start to see patterns that the people were, were seeing on the ground, get them mapped together, um, and be able to collect some behavioral information. Because as soon as a person puts a little pinpoint down, uh, the observation form pops up and it says, how many coyotes did you see? Did it run away? Did it approach you? Did it growl? Like, you know, all the biological indicators of aggression and things like that on the form that I want. And then from the citizen empowerment standpoint, it helps people see where have they seen the coyotes, so they have individual results. Um, and then over time, you might start to see trends. So people might, you know, we would reproduce these every four months for the first year we did. Um, and, and we would map out where the hot spots were. So people can start to see the trends of where there are more reports and more problems of what kind at different times of the year and make decisions for themselves about, should I leash my dog now? Um, and just one more thing on that site. It's, uh, it's had a lot of added benefits. Even though the tool itself, we don't have the funding to continue to use it, it created... Uh, I suppose the same as with, with Stanley Park, it created a visible place for people to go. Um, and so now when the media does a release on something, media does a, a report on coyotes, they know who to contact. So they end up calling uh, one of us from the, from the Living with Coyotes site. And so it provides people a reference place to go and get the education material, and they do use it. It's also provided a link in that I'll get... Just a general person will just find my email and send it, and they'll want to ask a question about what happened to their cat or their dog or this weird coyote behavior they saw. And so it provides this link between um, the science and the education and the, the general public, which is uh, critical, absolutely critical, um, especially if they're not getting the responses that they want. So any of you interested in um, what's happening with coexistence with coyotes on a much larger scale, you should look up Project Coyote out of, uh, out of uh, California. And Project Coyote was uh, developed by a woman named Camilla Fox a long 
history with canids. And um, this is an organization I sit on the science advisory panel for, uh, and they are, are extremely active across North America. And their mission is to um, promote coexistence, and they do that through education, through advocacy, and through uh, science. And so they have a number of, of uh, leading scientists sitting on their board of directors uh, and very active, very, very active at promoting this and making change across the United States specifically. So they go directly in and they work with communities. They use education programs, very similar to what you saw with Dan's, you know, be coyote aware, facts, safety, action points. How do I deal with a coyote in my backyard? So getting down to the grassroots level and, and helping people understand how do I take care of myself in these situations? How do I people, help other people understand? They also have ad, an advocacy arm. And so they lobby for the changes to laws and policies. And they've been very effective uh, in that area. So they provide a really good model. And I don't know if any of you have been following that stuff with the Wildlife Service down in uh, the United States, but there's been some really obscene things going on um, using uh, Facebook and social media, where one of the wildlife peop one of the wildlife servant service um, employees was trapping wild animals, and then he was photographing his dogs attacking them, and then he was posting it on Facebook so people could watch and their horrifying images that went uh that, that then you know basically became viral um of these animals being tortured and they were being tortured by the dogs that were tearing them apart um but but more problematic by a government employee and uh so uh project coyote's been working relentlessly on that to get some kind of reform in the wildlife service and to get that person held accountable uh it, you know that's it's a really unpleasant situation that one they're also very active in this this sport that happens in the united states called coyote and fox penning i don't know if any of you have seen this what happens, and I'm not sure if it's happening in, in Canada yet, but they'll capture a wild canid fox or, or coyote, and then they'll put them in a fenced enclosure with a pack of hunting dogs, and then it's a sport to watch the hunting dogs tear the wild animal to pieces. They film it. They do the same thing. So it's not illegal, and um, they have been working to make it illegal in different states um, in the U.S. So as I say, like, this is the thing that I find most perplexing about coyote. Uh, you know, all canids are persecuted. Everywhere in the world, all canids are persecuted. Um, coyotes are one of those that are persecuted ruthlessly, and we do horrific things to them. So they've gone from being this spiritual animal, creator of the universe, to this thing that we do um, absolutely horrific things to. They also have an example of a very, uh, through practice, they've, uh, Camilla actually uh, implemented this program, the Marin County Livestock and Wildlife Protection Program, and I know Louise is going to talk a lot more about um, how effective these things can, can be uh, with respect to cattle industry and the sheep industry, but this is an active program that was put in place, uh, headed up by Camilla, uh, and it's a program where, you know, if, if uh, livestock producers had um, 
more than 25 head of whatever their livestock was, they could be eligible for this program where there was a subsidy to improve their fencing, to implement the use of guard dogs, uh, to, to really test this idea. Could we find a more effective way to deal with these problems? And the, in that county, their losses of, of livestock fell from 5 to 2.2 percent. Um, at the same time, as the cost of the program fell by over $50,000. Um, so in the first couple of years, they say they, they weren't able to tell if it was just a trend, but over time they see this has been a highly effective program. Um, the, the ranchers themselves are, are the people on the ground who are implementing this stuff, uh, and it's, it's effective, and there's been um, extremely high buy-in. So a nice example of something that can work if we work together between government, between nonprofit, between people in uh, the, the ranching community and and what the science is saying. So there's evidence out there uh, that, that these kinds of things can uh, can work. And I want to just touch on one last thing before we're done here. Um, emergent issues that I think are important. You know, we tend to focus on the trappers who are out there and we you know, we don't, we don't like the use of leg hold traps. But don't forget the researchers who are out there using leg hold traps to put radio collars on animals so they can study them. Um, it, it's the same leg hold trap that's being used. You'll hear people talk about the soft catch trap. That's, this is a soft catch trap that I used when I helped with trapping, um, a long time ago. And, uh, at the time, we convinced ourselves that the impact was, was low or, or we used what's called the utilitarian perspective. It was one or two of them might get mangled, but the whole population is going to uh, be improved by that. That's no longer acceptable, but the scientists are slow to respond. Um, you know, we know that suffering is suffering, and, and so there's another key group that has to be broken through, and that's the... Um, the science community that still is able to objectify these animals and, and do that for the, in the name of science. So, so if this is used in science, you have to ask the question is, does it warrant the suffering of animals? This is a picture from here, and I don't know if you can see it, but this is the kind of soft catch inju injuries that you get, and, and I've seen them in the BAMP study that I worked on as well, uh, and, and it has to change. And there's a high resistance to changing. So any animal that you see studied that's wearing a radio collar went through some major traumatic event in order to get that radio collar on it. And I, and I can attest to it. <laughs> I can attest to it because I've seen it. This is a wolf. So not only has the animal gone through some kind of physical trauma, this, the science that's out there that's researched blood samples from animals immobilized is showing long-term effects um, on the physiology of the animal and reduction in fitness of the animal. And this was specifically in grizzly bears and in black bears, um, uh, and increased mortality because of the effects of the drug on the system. And a lot of that is just going is just invisible. So I'll leave the last word to the coyotes. This is an example of the kind of ecosystem on the side of, at the edges of Calgary, where you see the immediate transition from residential development into prairie and the, uh, the conversion of coyote habitat into human habitat. But I think the coyotes get the last word here. That's it. Thank you. 
This is Defender Radio.